Genesis chapter 6 is where we will study this evening. Genesis chapter 6. Since the time of Adam, sin had corrupted the world. The first clear evidence of Adam's sin was seen in the curse of the earth and his subsequent estrangement from God. But the consequences of their sin, Adam and Eve, that is, continued. Eve would experience great pain in childbirth and would have a desire to rule over her husband instead of submit. The reality of their sin and its consequence was seen further in Cain's murder of his brother Abel. And as Adam lived longer and longer, he was able to see firsthand the complete defiance against God as a result of his sin. He lived up until 100 years before the flood. 120 years, I believe it was, before he finally died. Um, And certainly in that time, Adam must have heard news of theft, arson, rape, and murder, and probably had attended countless funerals of his descendants. But after he died, between his death and the flood, 120 years there, he he uh, was not able to witness that things got even worse. That they became more and more pagan. That idolatry was out of control. They dismissed God and His Word in every part of their life. And it got so bad that in chapter 6, verse 5, we find that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So God responds in verse 7 by saying that His Spirit would not strive with man forever, that judgment would come in 120 years according to verse 3. And even though there would be judgment, God would also provide protection for one man and his family. A man who became the object of God's grace simply because of his faith. That he believed that what God was said, what God said was true. Now, what I'd like to do is read this entire section that we're going to cover. And it begins in chapter 6, verse 9, and ends in chapter 7, verse 9. So, try to keep your attention as we read through this account of... Um, of God wiping the slate clean with these people. Starting over again, in other words, with His creation. Chapter 6, verse 9. These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. Noah became the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. You shall make the ark with rooms, and you shall cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you shall make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. 
You shall make a window for the ark and finish it to a cubit from the top and set the door of the ark in the side of it. You shall make it with lower, second, and third decks. Behold, I, even I, am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life from under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall perish. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife, and your wife and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every kind into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds after their kind, and of the animals after their kind, and every creeping thing of the ground after its kind. Two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. As for you, take for yourself some of all food which is edible and gather it to yourself and it shall be food for you and for them. Thus Noah did according to all that God had commanded him. So he did. Then the Lord said to Noah, Enter the ark, you and all your household. For you alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this time. You shall take with you of every clean animal by sevens a male and his female and of the animals that are not clean two, a male and his female. Also of the birds of the sky by sevens, male and female, to keep offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For after seven more days I will send rain on the earth forty days and forty nights, and I will forty nights, and I will blot out from the face of the land every living thing that I have made. Noah did according to all that the Lord had commanded him. Now Noah was six hundred years old when the flood water came upon the earth, and Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him entered the ark because of the water of the flood of clean animals and animals that are not clean and birds and everything that creeps on the ground there went into the ark to Noah by twos, male and female, as God had commanded Noah. What we're going to see here this evening in this passage is that God's response to wickedness is both judgment and mercy as we've seen God act throughout Genesis so far, that God is a wrathful God, that He does judge sin, but in His judgment of sin, He also shows shows mercy. In chapter 6, verses 9-22, through we see God's response to wickedness, that He brings judgment by way of the flood. Look at verse 17. Behold, I, even I, am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life from under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall perish. Now, God is going to wipe out the earth. Not complete annihilation. Not everything is going to perish. The animals in the water would still uh, survive. And, of course, those who were on the ark would survive. But, But the ones who lived on the land and all people... Now, some argue that this was just a local flood... They say that here in verse 17 that the earth can be translated as land, that it was just Noah's land that was covered with water, and that all life under heavens could just be all life that Noah knew about. But we'll see next week that the waters covered the tallest mountain plus 20 feet, 22 feet to be exact, and so it would be impossible for this flood to be local. You can find that in chapter 7, verse 20. God's going to destroy the earth by water. The reason for the judgment is found in verses 11 through 13. 
Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all the flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. And God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them, and behold, I am about to destroy them and the earth. Three times he says that the earth was corrupt. That the people on the earth were corrupt. They were filled with violence, as it says in verse 13. Verse 5 says that the Lord saw the wickedness of man, that it was great upon the earth, and that every thought and intent of their heart was only evil continually. Notice verse 11 and 12, that this action that they're, they're doing, this wickedness, is in the sight of God. Verse 11 says, now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God. In verse 12, God looked on the earth. This is the standard for purity. It is God's holiness. He doesn't just stand afar off and say, here's my creation, here you go, you guys are all set, I'll leave you alone to yourself. No, instead, He, he, he looks upon His creation. And in His sight, He sees whether they are good or evil. And this earth was filled with corruption. And yet, despite this judgment that would come through the flood, there was mercy. Verses 9 and 10 show us the, this man, Noah. These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God, and he became the father of three sons. The righteousness of Noah. We see God's mercy in 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 protecting this one righteous man. And he does it through an ark of protection that we'll look at here uh, in just a minute. But here's what we have. We have the corruption that's going on in all the earth that every thought, every intent of the heart was only evil continually on all the earth except for one man who was counted as blameless, righteous, and he walked with God. What does this mean? What does it mean for Noah to be blameless? This word can also be translated, as it is in the Psalms, as perfect. This is the same description that God gives to Satan regarding his servant Job. Have you considered my servant Job? That he is blameless and upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. But the idea of this word is not that Noah or Job, as I explained when we were going through Job, it's not the idea that they're without sin, that they are perfect in that sense. That Rather, the idea is perfect in the sense of maturity. That with regard to the spiritual life, they were where they were supposed to be. They were where followers of God were supposed to be. That's where Noah was. Notice the prepositional phrase that follows the word blameless in verse 9. He was blameless when or, or, or how in his time. It was in comparison to the rest of the world, Noah was, was upright. Noah was blameless. Noah is called righteous, similar to how you should be viewed, or Noah is called blameless, similar to how you should be viewed as a Christian. That in comparison to the world, you are blameless. That when someone brings a charge against you, it should not be able to stick because of your upright Christian moral character. And if you are a Christian, then your life should bear a testimony of what Christ is like. And that's why 
the way that we live as a church matters. It's very important how we live. It doesn't simply it's not simply enough for us to have the right sort of head knowledge about what kind of doctrines are true and what's are false. But rather the way that we live matters because it, it shows something about what we believe. And so in that sense Noah was blameless in his time. In comparison to the rest of people, it was as if he were perfect, although we understand that he was not. We'll see this later when we get to chapter 8 and 9. But not only does um, not only does the Scripture writer here, Moses, call him blameless, he's also called, at the end of verse 9, or he's also said to have walked with God. Now think with me, who else in human history up to this point was said to have walked with God? Who is it? Enoch? Exactly. Enoch in chapter 5, verse 24. And as a result of having walked with God, he was taken. He did not die. God showed special favor to him. Now, perhaps another answer would be Adam, but but actually, with regard to Adam, it said that God walked with Adam. So, it's kind of a small distinction, um, but, but technically it was God that walked with him in the cool of the day and... Um, and not the other way around. That's found in chapter uh, 3, verse 8, I believe. But do you understand that walking with God should um, should not be obscure for us? It should not be unusual? Micah chapter 6, verse 8 says this, He has told you, O man, of God, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. This is what a believer does. He walks with God. Now we understand here that with Enoch and Noah, there's probably a special sense in which they had a, a close relationship with God. That, that it wasn't quite like what Adam experienced where he was without sin and he had this great, perfect fellowship with God. Instead, it was... Even though he had sin, he was separated from God because of his sin, he still had a, a relationship with God. And the same can be true of you if you are a believer. To do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. But the one I skipped over, the, the description of Noah in verse 9 that I skipped over was the word righteous. He's called a righteous man. What's so special about Noah? I mean, did Noah somehow... Did he somehow avoid a sinful, depraved heart? Did, did he avoid a sinful nature like you and I have and the rest of Adam's children? Was he sort of a, 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 a proto-savior that he was so blameless that he was actually righteous before God? Turn with me to chapter 8, verse 21. Chapter 8, verse 21. God, after the flood, makes a comment with regard to the people and their hearts. And I believe that this comment includes Noah and his family. After Noah builds an altar in verse 20, it says, The Lord smelled the soothing aroma, and the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. And I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. 
Okay, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. Does that exclude Noah? I would say no. In fact, further proof that Noah did have a sinful, depraved heart is found in the following story, chapter 9, verse 21, when Noah got drunk. Okay, you're familiar with the story. We won't look at it now. We will in the weeks ahead. So, so what is... In chapter 6, verse 9, what is Moses saying about Noah? How could Noah be righteous? How could he become righteous? He, he wasn't better than anyone else, was he? I think the distinction between Noah and the rest of humanity was this. He simply believed the promises of God. That he had faith in God. He assumed that what God said was true. God said that, that the earth is corrupt and it should be destroyed by water and I want you to, to, uh, to, uh, to, to build an ark. And Noah believed him. And he obeyed. He simply believed that what God said was true. In fact, Hebrews chapter 11 commends him for his faith. Not necessarily for his righteousness that he did a lot of good things, but for his faith that he believed in God's promises. He believed in God's warnings. James chapter 4, verses 6 and 7 tell us that we can be the object of God's grace as well. My point here is that Noah was not exempt from a sinful, depraved heart, but the thing that set him apart and made him the object of God's grace was that he believed God. And we can have that same, we can be the object of God's grace as well. We do that through humility and obedience. James 4. 6 and 7, let me read it for you. He gives a greater grace. Well, how do we get this, James? Therefore it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. The way that we are the object of God's grace is through humility and obedience. In other words, God credits Noah's account with righteousness, not because he was righteous, but because he believed in God and what he had promised. And the evidence of Noah's faith was in his obedience. The same is true for you. That God demands perfect righteousness and you and I cannot be perfectly righteous. So in place of that, God accepts faith in the one who was perfectly righteous, Jesus Christ. And the expression of our faith is seen in our obedience. This is what we're going to find out about Noah. That he was a man who believed God and the expression of that was seen in that he obeyed even during difficult circumstances. So God gives Noah two things. We're going to see here as He tells him to build the ark. He gives him a detailed design and a promise of salvation. How much more did he need? How much more do we need? God has given us a detailed design and a promise of salvation. And so here's what it means to live righteously like Noah, to be blameless, to walk with God. It means to believe God's promises and to obey Him. When we boil our Christian lives down to those two things, it seems so simple, doesn't it? Believe God's promises and obey Him. But when we walk away from this place, it's not quite that simple, is it? 
not quite that simple to live it out. But that is what it means to be a follower of God. So God set apart this one man. He, he, he took this man and made him the object of His grace. And the way that He would protect this man and his family as they, they really became beneficiaries of Noah's righteousness. We don't learn anything about his family's righteousness, so they may or may not have been um, people who followed God. But, the, but it is clear that they helped him, and it's clear that, um, that they became beneficiaries of Noah's faithfulness to God. So God tells him to make this ark of protection in verses 14 through 16, and then verses 18 through 21. And the type of wood that he tells Noah to use is called gopher wood. It's probably made of cedar trees or cypress trees, which were prominent in that area. Can you imagine how upset all the environmentalists must have been when they found out how many trees that Noah was going to use? The look of the ark is found in verses 14 and 16. We find that in verse 14 that it's covered inside and out with pitch. This would uh, make it watertight. In fact, the only other time that the word ark is used in the Scripture outside of these passages that are before us is in, um, in Exodus chapter 2 when Moses' mother makes a basket or an ark of bulrush uh, for, the, uh, for, for Moses to go in into. And she, in the same way, covered it with pitch, both inside and out. This made it watertight, made it float, uh, made, made, it, uh, made it work. Look at verse 14 with me. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. You shall make the ark with rooms and shall cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you shall make it. Um, and he, he goes on to talk about uh, the dimensions of it. It, it had a roof that, um, that was supposed to cover the ark, keep the rain from coming in. Remember, it's going to rain for 40 days and 40 nights. And... According to verse 16, it says that you shall make a window for the ark and finish it to a cubit from the top. A cubit is basically from your elbow to the top of your middle finger about 18 inches. That's how they used, uh, that's how they made their me measurements. And um, so it um, wasn't quite a perfect standard of measurement, but it was a pretty good one if you think about it for their time. And so this window would be 18 inches from the top of the roof, and it probably was a series of several windows that was that were used to bring in light and air, and later to have Noah open so he could send out the raven and the dove. And um, and then in verse 16 we see that he's supposed to make a door on the side of the ark, and then at the end of verse 16 three decks, the lower, the second, uh, the the lower, the second, and the third decks. But these large, the, these decks were not just large, empty spaces, but verse 14 tells us that you shall make the ark, in the middle of the verse, you shall make the ark with rooms. So it's not as if he's just got three empty, large spaces and animals are just running all over the place, uh, but rather it's, it's all um, separated by walls. And the size of the ark is seen in verse 15. This is how you shall make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, and its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Okay, so if a cubit is a foot and a half, its, its width would be 75 feet. 50 cubits, 75 feet. 
Okay, so to give you an idea of how wide this ark was, okay, this room here from the back wall to the baptistry is about 60 feet. So if you went out to the back of the foyer, to the back of the baptistry, you would have close to 75 feet. That's how wide. So you, you just picture how... Okay, it's going to be long. We'll talk about that here in a second. That's about how wide the ark was. And its height was 30 cubits. So that would be 45 feet high. Now, there are three decks. So each one is 15 feet high. And the top of this ceiling is 15 feet down to the floor. Okay, so this is one deck. This is the width of it. This is the height. And um, it's going to expand for 300 cubits, which is 450 feet. 450 feet. So each deck has, okay, so if we're, we're picturing this as the width and 450 feet, 225 feet that way, 225 feet that way, we're talking over 34,000 square feet per deck. Over 100,000 square feet, or, excuse me, yes, 100,000 square feet for the entire ark. With all the wood that was used to put this thing together, it would have weighed about 14,000 tons without anything in it. Now, the main function of the ark was for protection. So it's not going to be, you're not going to see it like the, the average ship that you would see in the ocean. It's, the main function is for it to float. And because that it is so long, it would be actually a pretty comfortable ride, even in these harsh storms. There were no sails on it. There's no float. There are no outboard motors or rudders or even oars. It was simply designed to float. And so the ends were probably squared off, uh, as you've seen in some of the pictures that people make of the ark. Not, not coming to a narrowed point, because it wasn't designed to go through the water. It was designed to just float on the water. And according to um, Answers in Genesis, Ken Ham and Terry Mortensen, they suggest that Noah actually hired contractors to help him with this job, which took over 100 years to put together. Very likely that that is the case, that he would have had to hire people. And you say, well, how, why would anybody ever do that? Why would an unbelieving pagan help Noah in this project? Well, the same reason that people work for companies that they don't believe in today. Simply trying to make a paycheck. And so Noah very well could have hired uh, some men to help him to do this. So the purpose of the ark is to protect Noah's family, and we see this in verse 18. Before I get there, let me just say that if, just to get an idea of how long this thing is, okay, we got an idea of how wide and how tall. If you put the ark, the very center of the ark on the middle of a football field, it would expand all the way past the end zones to about 125 feet on either side, or sorry, 75 feet on either side. So that's how big, next time you go to a football game, a professional football game, or college, that will give you an idea of how long it is. So the purpose is to protect Noah's family. Verse 18, But I will establish my covenant with you, which we'll talk about in the weeks ahead, and you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your, wife and your sons' wives with you. And he also would protect more than that. He would also protect every... Two of every land animal. We see that in verses 19 and 20. So that includes two of every species. 
to of every bird after their kind. And the reason he puts in there after that kind, their kind, when these two animals come together and reproduce, they can actually, uh, they can actually reproduce something like them. Okay, that's what a species is. Two of every animal, uh, two of every bird, two of every animal that moves on the ground, whether it had legs or not, like a snake, for example. And the reason to do this was to keep them alive. That's what it says at the end of verse 20. To keep them alive. In other words, to keep them from going extinct. If God wiped them all out, He would have had to recreate them. He would have had to to re uh, to, to remake them. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, he brought no sea creatures aboard because they would all be spared outside of the ark. And that's why God is specific when He says that I will destroy everything on the land, both humans and animals. The sea creatures could exist apart from apart from um, the, being on the ark. In addition to the clean animals that came on board and the unclean animals, there were also a there were also several more clean animals that had to be taken. We see this in chapter 7, verse 2. You shall take with you of every clean animal by sevens a male and a female, and of the animals that are not clean, two a male and a female, and also the birds of the sky by sevens, male and female, to keep offspring alive on the face of the earth. How many is this? Is this okay, it sounds like when you read verse 2 that that it is by sevens a male and its female. Does this mean it's 14 of the clean animals and only two of the unclean? Well, I would suggest to you that that is not the case because, look at verse 9 with me. There went into the ark Noah, uh, they went into the ark to Noah by twos. Literally, it says there, two, two. Okay, that's literally what it says in the Hebrew, two, two. And if you go back up to verse 2, it literally says, you shall take with you of every clean animal seven, seven. So in other words, what it's saying in verse 9 is that they were coming in two by two. And that's why I would suggest in verse 2, it's saying that you are to take them seven by seven, male and female. Okay, one of each kind, seven by seven, to make sure that we continue on the race of clean animals. Um, now, we don't know how Noah knew about the distinction between clean and unclean animals. He wouldn't find this out, well, at least the people of Israel would find it out later in Leviticus chapter 11 when Moses wrote down that law for them. But apparently, Noah knew somehow which animals were clean and which were not. Now, why have five extra of the clean animals? We only have two of the unclean and seven of the clean animals. Why have the extra? There's two reasons for that. The first is found in nine, chapter 9, verse 3. Chapter 9, verse 3. And we can infer from this that this is the reason that, that some of them were brought on board. Every moving thing that is alive... God says, as He's given a covenant, covenant to Noah, shall be food for you. I give it all to you, as I gave the green plant. So it could be that they were that that these animals, these extra animals, are brought on board to feed both Noah's family and the other animals. Um, but also, the second reason is found in chapter eight, verse twenty. 
And we, we saw this a little bit earlier, but I'll just read it again. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and every clean bird. See that? Every clean animal, every clean bird, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. So if he was going to do this, if he's going to kill these animals either for eating or for sacrifice, then he had to still have a male and a female left to repopulate the earth. And according to the Scriptures, that is what happened. There were plenty of animals to be able to do that. Now, perhaps the, the, the biggest question that has come up with regard to the ark is how could the ark hold all those animals? How could the ark hold all those animals? I mean, if you think about it, right now there are 18,000 species of land animals. 18,000 different types of animals that live on the land. And if half of them are clean and half of them are unclean, which is probably not a very good ratio, there's actually very few clean, um, the total would be 81,000 land animals. How could we fit 81,000 land animals into 100,000 square feet along with whatever else we need? Keep in mind that the average land animal is smaller than a sheep. Okay, so... Uh, we have animals like squirrels and uh, all those animals from the rodent family and the reptiles. Lots of animals are smaller than sheeps, sheep. Additionally, the larger animals like the giraffe probably would have been, ba been, uh, been brought in as babies when they came onto the ark. This would be for a couple purposes. One, so they didn't have to feed them as much and two, so that they wouldn't take up as much space. You can see the same thing with regard to elephants and others. Now, they could have had full-grown uh, cows and goats, perhaps, um, so, that they could, so that they could use the milk that they would produce. Um, but it's hard to tell exactly what, what age level each of these animals were. But if you had this many animals, 81,000, this would fill up about two of the decks, two of the three decks, and this would leave plenty of space for a year's supply of food for both humans and animals. It would leave space for a water reservoir, a million insects, which we, uh, which are still known to, to this day, 10,000 birds, and the human being sweet. So there would be plenty of room on the ark for all these things. Um, and... Uh, it's likely that there was some sort of way that they received some of the rainwater and, and allowed it to drain into the reservoir uh, so that they could have this, um, this to drink from throughout their, their whole year longer. I think it was 371 days that they're in the ark. We'll talk about more about how they survived in this ark next week and see some of the amazing ways in which God provided for them and perhaps even changed the the um, the patterns or the the habitat of the animals during that time. We'll talk about that next week. But I want to um, look now at verse 22 because what we see in chapter 6, verse 22, is that Noah is a man who obeys God. Thus Noah did. God gives him all the instruction. Thus Noah did, according to all that God had commanded, so he did. What you're not going to find from Noah is him questioning God. Are you sure about this? Or, if you're really going to do this, can you show me a sign? 
like Gideon did. There are also no record, uh, no records of, of excuses by Noah. But I can't build that big of an object. I've never done that before. What if there aren't enough trees in our area? What if I have to ship in trees from, from a long way away? No. Noah believes God and he obeys God. This is what it means to be a believer. Look at chapter 7, verse 5. We see it again. Noah did according to all that the Lord had commanded him. Verse 7, Then Noah and his sons and his wives and his sons' wives with him entered the ark because of the water of the flood. Verse 16, Those that entered, male and female, all flesh, entered as God had commanded him. And the Lord closed it behind him. Now it must have been extremely difficult for Noah to do this. Imagine the scene. Picture as the ark is being built. Picture in your mind the skeleton of the ark as it's being constructed over the years and the mockery that Noah and his family must have received. This is no weekend project here where he just gets it done real quick. There's no, uh, there's no uh, quick work of this ark. It required several thousand tons of lumber and you couldn't just go down to the street to the local Home Depot and pick up your lumber. If, if he could, then he certainly would have kept them in business. But it took over 100 years to construct this floating vessel. And by the end of the project, Noah's family was probably very fit and tan from all the manual labor and the sun that they, they stood out and endured. And every day you would probably wake up if you lived in that area and you could hear the sound of trees being chopped down at the earliest of hours because of the, the sheer number of trees that had to be felled. Do you ever wonder if Noah doubted God's promises? Did Noah ever think, what if this flood doesn't come? I'm going to look pretty silly. People will call me a complete fool if this doesn't happen. I mean, how hard was it for Noah to obey compared to what we go through today? We have the completed revelation of Jesus Christ as explained in the Bible. And for us, it should be much easier, I believe, than for Noah. He received the Word of God. He received God's promise. He received God's command and he simply believed and obeyed. And what's amazing about Noah is that he didn't just do the work. He didn't just, okay, I'm just going to trudge through this, make sure that I'm okay. He helped to warn people of the coming judgment. That's why he's called in 2 Peter 3, 5, a preacher of righteousness. He gave them an opportunity. In fact, some of the people at Answers in Genesis suggest that there was plenty of extra room on the ark for, for hundreds of people to join them, which would show both God's mercy and the reality of Noah's proclamation of judgment and the fact that they had an opportunity to repent. Noah didn't simply just Noah didn't simply do the job. He he preached to people about the coming judgment. Well, in chapter seven, verses one through nine, Noah and his family board the ark along with the animal animals, and um, God says in verse four that He would send rain on the earth for forty days and forty nights. A new phenomenon. And through this rain and through the waters that come up from the deeps, 
the earth would be blotted out. It would at least the the land animals and all that was that was at that time would be destroyed. Now, um, all of these animals are supposed to come into this ark. This must have been quite a task for Noah. How did Noah corral all them? Remember, these are not domesticated animals. Okay, He wasn't doing his little dog whistle and they just kind of come. These are wild animals according to chapter 8, verse 1. Now, that's what the New International Version translates, the word that we have for beasts. Okay, I don't know of any domesticated beasts. So these are wild animals. How does he get them all to come in and stay in while he's getting the rest to come in and stay in? Well, I believe it's clear from chapter 7, verse 9, that Noah was not the one who gathered the animals. Look at verse 9. Okay, of all these animals, there went into the ark to Noah by twos, male and female, as God had commanded Noah. Okay, so they all went in. God is the one who brought them. He likely used a supernatural um, compulsion on these animals that kind of changed their instinctive motives to, to run to the ark, at least two of them, um, to run to the ark during this year of the flood. And as a result, those animals were spared and were able to be the, the beginning of a new uh, species of animals, or at least the, a continuation of their species. So what can we learn from this passage that we studied tonight? A lot of um, interesting material, certainly, but, but what kind of spiritual value is there to it? I think God here is sending a very clear message about sin, that, that He spoke to humans about their sin. He warned them, but now He makes it abundantly clear for those who were living at that time and for us that God hates sin. Okay, so if you want to ever, if you ever wonder what God feels about sin, just think about the flood. Think about the disastrous, horrific events that happened as people are dying in the flood. And that will tell you what God thinks about sin. So if you ever question, well, maybe God kind of doesn't mind sin, maybe it's not that big of a deal to him. Here's the picture that God wants in your mind. The flood. There are disastrous effects to those who follow after their own lusts. So be warned about God's coming judgment. Jesus says that the people in the last days will be like they were before the flood. Listen to Matthew chapter 24, verses 37-39. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. Jesus says, in the last time, the people will be the same way. They will be going about their busy lives thinking that God is too merciful to bring about judgment on the world. And God says, I, I hate sin. And here's my display of that. For the people of that time, the flood. For the people of the end times, the tribulation. 
And yet through all this, God provides a way of escape. God is merciful. He is merciful to those who put their faith in Him like He was with Noah. And He still shows mercy to you and I when we put our faith in Him. But in addition to His mercy to believers, He's also merciful to unbelievers. Have you ever considered how much time God gave these people to repent? When He saw that every intent of their heart was only evil continually, why did He not destroy them immediately with the flood? Was it simply so that Noah could have time to build the ark? Couldn't God have spared him some other way? Absolutely. I think one of the purposes was so that they would have time to to repent. And, And that we could see God in His mercy, in His forbearance, and praise Him for that mercy despite the fact that they don't deserve it. We don't deserve for Him to forbear with us. Listen to Romans chapter 9, verse 22. Paul puts it this way, What if God, although willing to demonstrate His wrath and to make His power known, endured with patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And what if He did that so to make known the riches of His glory upon vessels of mercy which He prepared beforehand for glory? Part of the purpose of God taking time and forbearing, being long-suffering with people who will finally be condemned is so that we can look to God, recognize that we deserve to be in their shoes, we deserve to be condemned, destroyed, and yet see the mercy that was poured on us and praise God for His mercy. So that we can see the riches of God's glory. Like with Noah, God has given you a warning and a promise. What will you do with it? Will you ignore His warning and promise and make a mockery of what God is doing or will do? Turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. I want to conclude our study here this evening. Because I think there's some valuable lessons that we can learn from this passage. It's actually been part of our Scripture reading the past two Wednesdays. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 through 18. And what Peter tells us here is to avoid, for us to avoid, make a mockery of God and his judgment. We must remind ourselves of three things, and we must respond in three ways. So here it is. Verse 3. Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But why his, by His Word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact, fact escape, you, escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for anyone to perish, but for all to come to repentance. 
But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to His promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look at for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also is in his letters, speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and un- unstable distort, as they do also the rest of Scriptures to their own destruction. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you're not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Peter says, Many people will make a mockery of the last days. They will continue on in their life and say, all things have continued as they are. I mean, since the beginning of the creation, they've always been as they are, but, but what they failed to notice was that God made the world by separating the waters and then He destroyed the world with the waters. And so the flood is actually a picture of the coming judgment that will come, except this time by fire. So they're wrong to make that claim. They're wrong to make the statement that everything will continue as it will, as it has, because it won't. God is slow because He wants all to come to repentance. But what happens is as He waits longer and longer, people just fall into their sin even more and more. They, they follow after their own lusts. And so the God of mercy will finally come in judgment. The God of slowness will be swift in judgment at some point. So, Peter wants to remind us of three things. Number one, that God is Creator. Verses 5 and 7. Remember that God made all things. It is God. The God of the universe. He made it all. Number two, God judges sin. He hates it. Verse 6, that the judgment of the world came through the flood. And then three, he wants us to remember, and people, unbelievers alike, that God's final judgment will come. Don't let this escape you. That A day with the Lord is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. And He's not slow about His promise. He will follow through on it. And He wants us also, Peter does, he wants, us to remind, he wants to remind us of those three things about God. That He's Creator, He judges sin, and that He will judge sin. And then He wants to also us he wants us to respond in three ways. Verse 11, living holy lives. Verses 12 and 13, looking for the coming of Christ. Verses 14 through 18, persevering in doctrine and faith. Judgment is coming. Judgment is real. God hates sin. 
and He will destroy all those who oppose Him. And yet He provides mercy to those who are like Noah. They simply believe in His promises and obey what He's told them told them to do. And that's something that the Spirit of Christ has given you if you are a follower of His. That you have the faith to follow Christ. You have the... the the, uh, you have the ability to believe and to be counted as righteous, not because of anything that you have done, but because of God's mercy. Let's pray. Father, help us this evening to take seriously the coming judgment which will come down through the scepter of our Lord, the King of all the universe, Jesus Christ. Help us to think about this as we speak with our neighbors and our co-workers, as we interact with our unsaved family members, that all things will not continue as they always were. And proof of that is in the flood, that, that you do judge sin, and you will judge sin. And yet, in all of it, you are a forbearing God. You are slow to become angry and quick to forgive. And so at the the slightest hint of our repentance, You're ready to be there and forgive us. And we're thankful for that. You're continuing ongoing grace in our lives. Help us to believe in the promises that You've made to us and to obey the commands that You've given to us and to do them, those things with glad hearts that overflow with love for You so that we could be counted counted worthy of the calling for which you have called us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.